0: i'm your host eric davis continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness uh as a uh counter-cultural person in some ways i've long identified with the uh, beat movement like a lot of folks uh you, you know go back to the beginnings of uh the sort of bohemian resistance to uh, modern corporate america and following its threads and uh, inspirations and uh uh, watching some of its, uh, problems and errors. Uh, but it's always interesting to figure out what, um, what beat people most identify with, you know, which what who's your favorite, you know, and I'll put Gary Snyder in the list because, uh, uh he was, he was one of my, uh, big influences. Um, and it's interesting. There's different times in my life when I feel like I was a little more in a Ginsburg space, a little bit more in a Kerouac space, uh, definitely in, in some Snyder spaces, um, but I must say, as I, as I get older and perhaps a bit more, um, uh, I don't want to say pessimistic, but uh, a, a critical of a lot of the uh, developments in society, the one who stays with me the most, the one I think that is the, of deepest value for a full engagement with the totality of reality, not merely uh, forms of exuberance and, uh, and, and lifestyle augmentation, is definitely uh, William S. Burroughs. Uh And it, it, there's something about an encounter with Burroughs. He gets under your skin. He gets into your mind uh, in a marvelous way that allows you to see the world differently, not always so pleasantly. And yet there's a, a, a great deal of freedom and uh, a, a very unusual set of perspectives in him. And and the more you, you, you study Burroughs, the more he unfolds, the more he opens up, the more he becomes more than the... Uh, you know, crotchety, gravelly-faced specter uh, that I sort of uh, first tuned into when I was uh, a young man. And there's tons of writings on on Burroughs. He he created a lot of uh, literature, but one of the most interesting books that I've come across is uh, A.J. Lee's new one, Mentored by a Madman, the William Burroughs Experiment. And uh, Andrew Lee's is not just a, uh, an, another uh, literary scholar obsessed with the beats. Uh, Nori, is, is he some kind of madman, uh, a bohemian renegade of the junk circuit? Uh, Andrew Lees is a professor of neurology uh, at the National Hospital in London, and he's one of the world's leading experts on Parkinson's disease, uh, Alzheimer's, and other sorts of issues. And his book you can kind of look at it from two different perspectives. In in one way it's a, a story of how his encounter with Burroughs as a reader in the sixties really set him in, on a kind of different tack, even as he became a professor and a neurologist and a researcher and a clinician, climbed his way up the ladder through the various institutions, dealing with bureaucracies, dealing with the conservatism of the medical industry and the uh, and the, the sort of role of uh, big pharma and all of these kinds of issues. Burroughs was always there with him kind of as a, a sort of counterweight, a kind of a parallel vision of, of both someone who was very critical of doctors and yet in his own way was a kind of researcher and a, a doctor himself and was certainly very interested in medical science in a way that a lot of other people we associate with the B generation or the counterculture was not. And so in one sense, this uh, wonderful book is a story about this relationship or connection uh, that Lee's had uh, with Burroughs, but it's also Lee's own story as a researcher. And you get one of those wonderful kind of nitty gritty stories, not, not unlike some things in Oliver Sacks, who was a, a friend of, of Lee's and, and someone who clearly um, was, uh, you know, inspired him as another model of a deeply humanist critical thinker, also working with uh, the facts of science and the, the industry of, um, of medicine uh, but it, it, he really has his own kind of way of moving through his research, and you and you get a wonderful view of the kind of mixture of intuition, uh, institutional wrangling, uh, different cultures, different personalities, the way that individuals, uh, teachers, other other characters along the way, and especially patients uh, can uh, provide information. Suggestion, in, uh, intuitive leaps uh, that enable the, the the business of medicine to go forward, uh, and so it's a wonderful slice of life. It's not often one gets to see kind of the inside of a doctor's point of view. Uh, that's not, <laughs> frankly, another kind of. So um, there's a sort of form of, of, of arrogance that is often associated with doctors that by no means Elise has anything to do with it. It's a very heartening tale, even if at the end uh, he gets into some criticisms of contemporary medicine that uh, hit home very, very loud and strong in these days. Uh, you know, in the United States wrestling with, uh, you know, medical care and uh, the attempts to erode what, what you know, vague safety nets still exist for, for, for those of us lucky enough to have access to them. So it's not the prettiest picture, but uh, uh, we get a good angle of it in Mentored by a Madman. So with no further ado, Andrew, thanks uh, for joining us on on Expanding Mind. It's a pleasure, Eric. Wonderful. You know, I, I think I would lo- like to start off with when you first... Red Burroughs, like what where you were at in your your own kind of career and and what that kind of moment was like? How much did you identify with that the sort of wildness of uh, of London in the 60s? or if you, even if you were in London, I'm not sure where you were in, in at that period. And just kind of how you moved through those uh, that that little that crazy time with with Burroughs at your uh,
1: at your literary side. Well, I was born in Liverpool, but I I first met Burroughs when I was already uh, just starting my medical training in London, Uh, and I first met him on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album, and I think, perhaps unlike most people, um, I wanted to know who all those faces were uh, on the front of the album, and when I first uh, looked at the album, there were very few that I actually recognized. Of course, I recognized Hitler and Marilyn Monroe and Uh, Charlie Chaplin and a few other people but most of them I didn't recognize but uh, I made an effort to look them all up and of course William Burroughs came up under a queer junkie writer of Naked Lunch who had been the subject of the last pornography case in the state of Massachusetts for his book Naked Lunch which had been banned for two or three years and I, I, I guess that kind of captured my interest a little bit but I I didn't really uh, take any more notice about it, but I think looking back, the fact that I was obsessive enough um, to uh, actually identify all those people might have been a harbinger of what was to become because um, well, one of the things you need to be a good neurologist apart from being a good listener and uh, perhaps in contrast to some other specialities in medicine, also a very good observer and have a, an acute sense of vision. Uh, but you also need to be very obsessive and scrupulous, not, not only in your recording of data, uh, but in your acquisition of facts. And I suspect that looking back, this kind of obsessiveness of looking at all the, the names on the front of Sergeant Pepper might might have uh, told my teachers something at that point. But I really didn't read naked lunch until two or three year, years later when I was well on into my clinical studies in the late 60s. And I got off very well to medicine, although I really I really started uh, life as a teenager wanting to be an Amazon explorer. I was very interested in botany. I read all the Victorian naturalist books, Richard Spruce, uh, Walter Bates, Wallace, and so on. Um, but my parents, I think... Perhaps I didn't appreciate it necessarily at the time, but they tactfully advised me that there wasn't much scope for work in in that area, or David Attenborough was already going strong. Um, And they sort of tactfully channeled me towards medicine. Um, So I was very, I mean, I, I came into medicine through botany, and I think although botany is of no use, or very little use, of course, many Plants uh, have medicinal properties but uh, I think what my interest in botany taught me was the ability to observe detail very carefully um, and to record uh, accurately what I saw and those two things were really important in my career as a neurologist. Now as I went on in clinical medicine I um, some of the things I saw I didn't particularly like and I, uh, I found it quite difficult to c- continue with my medical studies. For example, uh, young doctors, when I tell this story now, find it quite shocking and I write about it in the book. That, For example, we were allowed to do vaginal examinations on women who were anesthetized before surgery without their consent. And and, and the patients were often talked about in terms of their diagnosis rather than as human beings. And um, this, I found quite unsettling. Of course, I was a child of the '60s. Even medical students were uh, touched a little by the countercultural movement. Although, as you know, and I'm sure it's the same, was the same in the States. Medical, the medical students are separated in a sense from. The rest of the university and tend to be much more conservative, but it did. What was going on in the 60s did did actually permeate through, and I think it was through that that I, I read Naked Lunch. I remembered, of course, seeing Burroughs on Sergeant Pepper, and then I read Naked Lunch. And when I first read it, I didn't really know whether to vomit or laugh. But the the character of uh, Benway kind of reminded me a little bit of, um, and of course, Benway is the antithesis of good doctoring. He's what we all don't want to be. But in a sense, he reminded me a little bit of some of my more unpleasant surgery teachers who were prepared to take enormous risks and even kill people and, and really didn't worry too much about doing that. I mean, it wasn't as if they were necessarily saving lives. They didn't really have that much of a conscience, or at least it seemed to me like that as a young man. So uh, I read Burroughs, and I was on the verge, really, of, of dropping out of medicine, and I, did, I, I, had, I developed this, and of course this is metaphorical, it's not real, but I, I think I forged a, a Faustian pact with Burroughs. And Burroughs said to me, son, if you listen to what I have to say, and you pay attention to my writings, I'll let you continue in medicine. And I did. I kept my pact. And I found um, what he wrote, of course, he's known for his sorties into science fiction, and in fact some people consider him to be a science fiction writer. And of course many of his ideas looking at them from a scientific perspective, they're really quite harebrained. But amongst the harebrained ideas, such as William Reich's Orgo and his interest in psychology, I found much that really helped me um, to be a good medical researcher. Now, of course, he'd be a terrible model for a doctor. And one of the challenges that we we have now in modern medicine is... where to pass. it's getting more and more difficult. So to be a good doctor, uh, to care for patients and to treat them ethically and empathically is a totally different process from uh, researching. And I think the best doctors try to do both. And it's really quite difficult because, um, for example, particularly in North America now, many of the chairmen of... Um, big neurological departments in the great universities never get to see patients because they're so busy with administrative administrative and bureaucratic demands, raising money uh, for their departments, um, advising junior members of staff, uh, that they really have been taken away from um, uh, patient care. And I think the, the, the other driver which I think Burroughs helped me to stay away from was this this sort of drive, um, which is in a way driven partly by technological advances, which of course we, we, we all welcome in, in medicine, but um, to keep the artistic aspects of medicine very much to the fore, and of course this has led to the development of medical humanity courses in most of the big packages as a kind of uh, reaction to increasing distancing of uh, everyday modern medicine from um, uh, patient care. So that, that, that's kind of how my love affair with William Burroughs began just before I qualified as a doctor.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you covered a lot of wonderful things there. One thing that popped up in my mind is just this sort of fundamental question about, you know, you mentioned the um, the sort of uh, humanist side of medicine is, is really this kind of basic question of whether medicine taken in total is a science or what its relationship with science is. Um, because, you know, that's, a, it seems to me, a very fraught issue in that it's, it's one of those axioms that kind of underlie your attitude towards medicine, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a patient, whether you're someone trying to understand the, the way that the industry of medicine is working or the industry of pharmacology. Um, and, you know, there's, there was, a, I'm thinking of a recent hullabaloo where uh, the, the medical school at UC Irvine got some $200 million grant for an integrative medicine uh, program. And I think the, you know, the wife of the woman had been healed by homeopathy or something and they took the money and then they're getting all this grief. And then you have these sort of arch skeptics la- saying, you know, this has nothing to do with evidence-based medicine, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't want to ask you necessarily about your opinion about homeopathy or uh, a particular alternative treatments, but it's more that when you listen to them, you're like, oh, for these guys, medicine is science. But a lot of doctors I know they're like, well no, medicine is an art that uses science, but it's not a science. And if you think about it as a science strictly, you're, you're kind of missing the boat. And so even though you, a lot of your, your story is about you know hardcore studies of you know molecules, what do molecules do? How do they affect the brain? How can we understand that? Here's some evidence da da. da. I mean, it's very evidence-based. And yet there's this other dimension that involves intuition, it involves listening, it involves um, paying very close attention in a not necessarily, like, rationalistic way. It involves openness to unconventional ideas. So I'm just kind of curious how you understand in your own, from your own, you know, experience, the relationship between medicine and science.
1: No, I I completely agree with Some of your friends, I mean, I think medicine is an art. I mean, I was brought up in the old school of William Osler, the great Canadian physician who said that um, doctors treat disease, but good doctors treat the patient who has the disease. and That's really a very important distinction. And I think uh, although we depend very much on uh, uh, modern science for trying to understand causation of disease, Uh, This doesn't always translate into therapeutics and treatment uh, of individuals. And, of course, surgeons, many surgeons call themselves craftsmen. They certainly wouldn't see themselves uh, as scientists. And in my own uh, career, what I've seen is really the the doctors who end up most disappointed at the end of their career uh, are those who really set as a target winning Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology uh, because I think what they try to be is scientists and a a few do manage to do it but really we are not scientists when we try and lose ourselves in the wet laboratory we, we, we usually don't do very well I mean uh, there are a few doctors who really make a career change you know so they decide well look I'm not I, I'm not very good at treating patients so they get out of that and they go purely into science so they they, they really become scientists but I think for the rest of us um, it really is an art um, and uh, you know the the application of holistic approaches is something which I embrace, embrace very much. Um, for example, you know, why is it taken? well, this is not really holistic uh, approach, but, I mean, psychopharmacology is in t- is really in the doldrums. We have no new treatments for mental disease, uh, re- really new ideas about, Uh, medical drug treatment for mental disease for 20 or 30 years now. And yet it's only now that people are going back and looking at psychedelic drugs again and their possibility uh, to help uh, people with certain kinds of mental illness, such as post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. You know, this has just been a... uh, There's no good argument. There's no good scientific argument why that moratorium has gone on for so long.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what is your opinion of, of that? Uh, you know, kind of ongoing research, and not only in terms of treating these issues like PTSD, which have a, of course, a strong physiological dimension as well. Uh, but but e- e- even there's some, I, as far as I understand it, there's some evidence of neuro regeneration associated with certain psychedelic compounds and and it looks like there's some really interesting things particularly research coming out of brazil um i'm curious since you end the book with a really wonderful story of your your own experience you know we always have to remember we got to hand it over to burroughs not just that he went down there as an uh, you know intrepid madman in, in nineteen fifty three or what it was, and drank this oily brew, and there was nobody knew what it was. It was totally uncool. It must have been terrifying. What is this going to be? And you know he he has his experience. But we also have to remember as the story you you tell in the book, which pe- most people had not, Really recall that he 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 actually contributed his his one real dollop of science was to identify that the psychoactivity of of ayahuasca was not just based on the copy vine but that had to do with the infusion of uh, leaves that that had another element to it, so it was a very insightful work on his part anyway, decades and decades after that, you get to have your own experience going down and and ex- experiencing uh, ayahuasca. Um, What are your feelings about the possibilities, even particularly with 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 ayahuasca, uh, in terms of its medical applications?
1: Yeah, well, I think Burroughs does deserve a footnote in the annals of ethnobotany. I mean, it may have been good fortune that he, he met the father of modern ethnobotany, the late Dick Schultes, uh, while he was in Colombia trying to dig Yage, and he so, certainly took him under his wing. Uh, but he, as you, as you pointed out, he was the first to identify, through a voucher specimen, which is now in the Harvard Botanical Museum, the, the other uh, important component for ayahuasca, which is Psychotria vir- viridis, the leaf that contains DMT. And I think at that time, you know, he'd done he'd done anthropology uh, at Columbia after he'd finished his uh, English degree at Harvard, and he he was an avid reader of popular science, so he 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 read uh, most modern science. Um, and I think at that stage, and of course, when he went into the forest, he would just shot his common law wife, uh, June. Jerome Vollmer, which it was pretty awful, and I think he wanted to sort of sort himself out. Uh, but uh, but I think he also had a, a genuine desire to, to be a kind of field worker um, uh, and a scientist before, of course, the literary world adopted him, and he gave up all pretensions of being a, any kind of scientist. And I, I've always felt, when I've read his descriptions about his self-experimentation of with uh, psychoactive drugs that he writes in a very uh, objective um, way about the effects of these drugs, not, not in, he doesn't glorify them. He doesn't glamorize them and he doesn't exaggerate. I, I don't think. So he, he was, I think, always, he, even when he became a famous writer want, wanting to collaborate with, um, doctors, in a way, Uh, but none of them would listen to him because he was a a queer junkie and he wasn't a member of the establishment. And I think that that, that's one of the things I try to um, bring out in my book, that there are many ways of making scientific discoveries outside universities. And I think the fact that self-experimentation has become uh, a no-go area for ethics committees and medical journals is a great mistake because... If you look at the history of medicine, it's full of medical mavericks. And when I was training in the 80s, or when I was researching, doing most of my creative research in the nineteen eighties, uh, nothing was considered more ethical than to try a medication you were going to uh, administer to people uh, and patients uh, on yourself first. This was a kind of accepted practice. Now, now it's almost impossible to do it, and. This is a mistake, um, as, as you very well know. So, for example, Barry Marshall, who won the Nobel Prize eventually for discovering that Helicobacter pylori caused peptic ulcers, in order to convince the scientific and medical establishment, he had to drink a soup of Helicobacter pylori himself uh, and, and develop a peptic ulcer before anybody would actually accept that his, his findings. So... This is an argument. So to go back now to me and my my story, so like many people of my generation, I was offered uh, hallucinogenic drugs in the 60s, particularly LSD, but I was always very frightened to take them. I I didn't feel that my brain would be able to cope with them. I was frightened that I might go mad. So I've never taken any psychedelic drugs until this one experience which you mentioned when i was 62 and it was at a time when my research ideas were beginning to run out i felt i was treading water i'd become an authority figure Um, and i I was finding that i I, i was beginning to see my career as a bit of a failure because we we still really hadn't found a cure for parkinson's disease And the magic moment of L-Dopa in the 60s, which had brought me into this particular field, had not been reproduced. So when when I looked at other competing fields like cardiology, uh, AIDS, medicine, um, even cancer to a certain degree, uh, the progress we'd made in the field of neurodegenerative disease was a bit disappointing. And... I, I just had the chance because I was at an, a meeting with some good friends and Brazilian neurologists who I'd known for many years uh, in a place called Leticia, which is on the Brazilian colombia border. And I had the opportunity to visit a shaman. And I think, I think she was a, a kind of, if you like, relatively uncontaminated shaman. It seemed to be a, a, a kind of genuine ethnic Experience, as far as I was concerned, um, rather than a show that's involved just paying a load of money out. Um, and I think it helped me a lot. I mean, it helped me mainly, I think, to break down certain rigid barriers which I'd built up during my career as a university professor mixing with uh, a smaller and smaller group of super-specialists. And it also made me challenge, gave me the confidence to challenge authority much more uh, and imagine different worlds that I'd really not experienced uh, before that. I mean, like many doctors, I, I was uh, at least doctors working in a social health system like the British one. I was quite frightened of authority, Um and I'd never really dared to stick my neck out um, too much until after that experience when I felt I could speak out much more. So it did have, you know, for what whether it's a pharmacological effect or just a, an experience, a rich experience happening in the jungle, I really don't know. But I do think it was a positive um, awakening effect for me. and um, well- I mean,
0: in some in some respects, it, it it created a space to write the to write this book, which yeah. obviously took yeah. took some guts because you're, you know, you offer some very frank assessments of of uh, you know not so much specific colleagues but just the overall system that you're involved in. Some very very pointed uh, critiques of uh, the current state of social medicine and in the UK in particular, and problems with research uh, approaches, but also revealing your own. A willingness to not sound and think like uh, a a conservative doctor, and even throughout your kind of process. So it's a it's a wonderful story to read for you know for people who you know like like everybody. I've got to deal with doctors, but there's a sort of vibe around them, and they tend to be conservative and hard to talk to. And if you press them, they're not really interested in your opinion. And you know, there's kind of like this whole world. So it's actually fairly rare that we get to see inside of a career especially one where you were working with you know really extreme cases i mean the kinds of suffering that people go through with neurodegenerative diseases and the uh and the sort of fear around that and but then also the way in which you uh you kind of rise to the occasion both in terms of not knowing what the answer is but also in terms of uh having to work it out with people um so it's it's great that that you had the space to write something that I'm sure earlier in your career you never would have um, considered.
1: Yes, yeah. I w- of course, I wish I'd written it 20 years earlier. But um, you're right. I mean, I think I think the um, th- that experience did give me the confidence to write that write that book. And as I write at the beginning, I mean, I, I wasn't too worried about being put in prison. But I've always enjoyed uh, being a doctor. I've enjoyed the. Fraternity, if you like, of, of the medical profession and, and good friendships with colleagues. Um, and I was quite worried um, when it was published that I, I would be ostracised and denigrated and regarded as some kind of wacko. Um, and I was actually uh, slightly disappointed that that wasn't <laughs> didn't turn out. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in fact, uh, in fact, many of my colleagues. Uh, said, oh, yeah, of course we agree with uh, uh, everything you say, but, uh, you know, it's difficult to change it. It was that kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, and, of course, Burroughs, one of the things I did learn from Burroughs was the problem of systems and not just the pharmaceutical industry and the way that works, but the way universities work and um, healthcare systems work. Um, And I learned through his prescience, I mean, he predicted... So, so much of what what's come to pass. Uh, so, so what what he predicted has actually come true, or almost all of it has come true. It was probably already there in a, a lesser degree when when he said it, but I think most people didn't really quite realize it. And he taught me really to question everything um, uh, and be sceptical about. I mean, he, even I had some great teachers, but I, I think what I learned from Burroughs was to be a be a lamp unto myself and to uh, even though I can respect and learn from them I mustn't accept uh, everything uh, that is established fact as being the real truth um, and I, I I thank him for that I mean I, I think he did help me with that
0: one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is uh, I mean having you know, read oliver sacks like uh, like so many people i was familiar with you know some of the uh, the overall terrain of neurology but i really i got a different sense from you from your book a more specific sense maybe of, of like the particular and even kind of peculiar role that the neurologist plays because it overlaps Psycho- psychological phenomena, or things that we would think, okay, you need to see a psychiatrist, or you need to, you know, work under, go to a therapist, or something. But so you're, you're on some on some level, you're dealing with the mystery of the psyche and its pathologies, its obsessions, its neuroses, da da da. But it's this very different angle, even from psychopharmacology, you know, as as it supports psychiatry. Uh, and and you also give a wonderful de- de- uh, description of the way in which Sherlock Holmes was also important to you as a kind of character, which of course relates to Burroughs. They both, they share certain common features that are actually quite interesting that I hadn't thought about before I, I read your book. But it was also about the kind of detective-like quality where you're looking at these su- these behaviors and trying to see them as symptoms of something very, very physiological. Uh, but it requires you to go, become quite expansive with your understanding of human um, experience, too. So, uh, you know, I just I would even just like to hear a little bit more about what's what makes neurology a unique sub, you know, specialty and, and even more like what are the kinds of people who do it well? How are, are you in some ways representative of of of? A lot of uh, neurologists. Are you more of a, a, a an unusual character in, the, in that in that particular particular specialty?
1: Well, well, to answer your, your your last bit first, I think I'm a very standard kind of neurologist. I might be a little bit more revolutionary than most of them, but I'm I'm you know I've worked all my life in uh, an academic centre of in, uh, of excellence, doing rounds, teaching students. Seeing patients in clinics and so on, doing the sort of standard uh, neuro the, the business of neurology. Whereas Oliver, of course, was a a, a very eccentric neurologist. I mean, he didn't uh, for for most of his career he he wasn't attached to any faculty. He had no research fellows. He he, he was really an individual who visited. Um, chronically ill people in uh, residential care that most uh, neurologists had forsaken and left behind. So, uh, ma- And many neurologists, of course, uh, denigrate him uh, because they say he-, he-, he wasn't really a neurologist at all. He- his writing is more like Freud. Uh, he- he- his narratives are very long, um, not always accurate, and so on. I mean, I... I- Disagree with that stance about him. And of course, he's brought, he's, he's attracted more people into uh, neuroscience uh, through his books than, than certainly any of us as standard neurologists have, uh, have done. So I think he should be uh, credited for that, as well as his wonderful writing and his humanity uh, for individual patients. But he really is not. Uh, typical of neurology. And when uh, some of the young people who have uh, read Oliver Sacks and been attracted into neurology through him come to see the real world of neurology, they're very disappointed. You know, when you're faced with a ward full of um, demented, uh, crippled, handicapped people for which you can do very little about um it, it can be fairly soul destroying and you don't really necessarily get that feeling from Oliver's writing where he always emphasizes he almost he he almost makes deficits seem like gifts and of course that's why his work has been so admired and welcomed by the patient populations that these people who were ignored and isolated suddenly had a voice uh, through Oliver and i also admired admired him very, very much for that too. But I think what may, I mean, I, I've touched on what makes a neurologist, and but sure, whereas I, William Burroughs is perhaps my uh, guiding light for the medical research, um, Sherlock Holmes was a sort of alter ego for my clinical practice. Uh, perhaps Sherlock Holmes combined with a bit of the humanity of Dr. Watson, so the two rolled into one another. But the the diagnostic process that Holmes used in solving his crimes, in other words, using things like careful observation, listening carefully, and particularly deductive and abductive reasoning, reasoning backwards, these are uh, the essence of the, the diagnostic process of neurology. Now, Neurology has been transformed, of course, by MRI scans and neuroimaging, but the neurology I find still find very interesting is the neurology where the neuroimaging is normal, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, and that includes diseases like, well, not quite Alzheimer's, but Parkinson's disease, motor neuro ALS, all, all sorts of very interesting hardcore neurology disorders where Imaging has not uh, helped us to, to diagnose, and that that's where narrative is still very important. Where uh, uh, and uh, and I think we are one of the specialities, along with perhaps general practice in you know the family practitioner and the psychiatrist, who still deal very much in narrative. Many of the other medical specialities have been brought down to algorithms and techniques, and the history is is reduced to a sort of vestigial level. So I I would say um, to to sort of try and finish by answering your question, I would say, I mean, I was certainly drawn into neurology by its rationality and its uh, systematic examination. And in that sense, it's really quite different from psychiatry. So uh, although we're all dealing with the same thing, the diseases of the brain and the mind, the, the two disciplines uh, uh, and the way we approach the problems of brain disease have been quite difficult they they do converge of course in, in, with um, you know biological psychiatry and so on but but really there are still they're, they're still really very different and if you see if you if you meet a group of psychiatrists and a group of neurologists you you wouldn't have much difficulty in distinguishing them apart uh, at all. They, they really are quite different. You know, uh, I,
0: I feel we will be uh, amiss if we do not mention uh, one particular uh, sprightly molecule that plays a, a big role in your story, which is uh, uh, apomorphine, which is, of course, the, tr- the only treatment that Burroughs took seriously as a potential cure for, for junk sickness. Uh, partly through the ministrations of the very interesting Dr. Dent, and it ends up playing a role in in you know in your story as well as your as you're thinking about the problems with L-Dopa and some of the issues that happens with the with Parkinson's and the role that that MAOIs play in um, in in treating Parkinson's. Uh, and I'm just uh, curious again. Uh, well, I mean, one of the impressions you get, especially if you read like from the borough side, is you go, look, the guy comes out, he says, this stuff's amazing, but it, it never really happens. It doesn't get picked up. You talk a little bit in the story about how uh, there's, especially in the United States, that pharmaceutical corporations just seemed uninterested in it. What, what is your sense now? Do you feel that this is still uh, an untapped, or to some degree, untapped uh, potential? Uh, compound is it is is the is the story more nuanced now? Um, are there still things in
1: in uh, apomorphine that we should be uh, lo- looking towards? To to totally ignored um, and as I try to mention in the book, I mean when uh, Burroughs came uh, to London for treatment of his junk sickness. Um, there were a few maverick practitioners scattered throughout Europe who were using apomorphine. M- many of them thought it worked as a sort of aversive Pavlovian kind of therapy, so that it made you puke you know, and vomit after you'd taken it. But Dent, uh, because he'd seen cures in patients who had never vomited on it, came to a conclusion that it had some action on the back brain. It was a stimulator on the back brain. He had no evidence for this, but he felt that it was having metabolic effects uh, on the brain. And I I think Burroughs, with his scientific hat on, uh, kind of liked this explanation. It kind of made sense to him, uh, compared with all the other failed treatments he'd already had. Um, And it was... You know, it was another 10, more than another 10 years before we got to understand that apomorphine actually is a a very, very powerful stimulator of dopamine receptors in the brain. It it wasn't known when Burroughs was treated. But the the crazy paradox was that as the evidence for using apomorphine uh, became stronger from a scientific and hypothetical basis in the sense that we know that the pleasure and reward systems in the brain are controlled by dopamine and that many leading authorities in drug dependence see dopamine as the final common pathway for many addictive substance dependent addictions The, the, the 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 few people who were using it it withered away altogether and methadone arrived and then buprenorphine arrived and, you know, Bur- Burroughs used to say um, tre- treating uh, addiction with methadone was like tre- treating heroin addiction with methadone was like uh, treating uh, alcohol, alcohol, alcoholism with whiskey. It, it <laughs> was Like, you know, it, it was a, a totally nonsensical approach. Of course, he ended up on a methadone program. But uh, I think he was a very reluctant uh, uh, methadone taker. And I I, I mention in my book this sort of uh, terrible thing that in California up until 1992, um, apomorphine was classed totally erroneously as a class one uh, substance drug. That means a a medicine uh, that has a high... Proclivity uh, for addiction, um, and I think, of course, when Burroughs was trying to champion it uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, with the Narcotics Bureau, I mean this this sort of background and the fact that the name sounds very like morphine, or, although it, it isn't it isn't a narcotic at all, uh, has held the treatment back very much. So, uh, I think I mean I've talked already in. To, to you a little bit about the, the, the problems of psychopharmacology, which is really in the doldrums. But uh, substance dependence is is really in a in a difficult place because, of course, it's politicized. Um, those who work in substance dependence find it even harder than uh, the rest of us to launch new trials now because of regulatory red tape, Pharmaceutical companies are very reluctant to splash out money on, you know, than, um, uh, you know, have a risk that could kill somebody, and they could get terribly bad publicity. So it's really difficult to get uh, these things moving forward. And uh, but but I think there are the hope is coming from, as as I'm sure you know, little companies, you know, little venture. Capital companies, people who have an interested group of young people, scientists who are prepared to take risks uh, and, and investigate things, such as, you know, for example, this this idea that um, uh, medical cannabis might be helpful for Parkinson's disease, that taking little doses, sub hallucinogenic doses of LSD every day uh, might actually be helpful for people who are depressed. Um, the, these need to be tested and tried but it's really hard now to, to 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 do this
0: well it seems like one of the paradoxes is you know you started out mentioning um when you were when you were a student that there was such so little emphasis on the patient that you would have something like these these uh, you know unauthorized vaginal examinations right. which are you know abhorrent to us now yes. but we can also see that it was partly the way that institutions attempted to integrate ethics that ended up kind of paradoxically creating the situation that you were very articulate about at, at, at the end of the book in particular about all of the, the re, you know, the, the breaks against research and the sort of incredible bureaucracy and the incredible time it takes to get things going and the huge amount of money and how incredibly conservative it's become. So it's almost it's it's a it's a weird, you know, kind of logic of of institutions where they take in something that needs to be acknowledged and then almost, you know, run with it too, way too far or at least can't figure out how to also make space for the risks that are required to make uh, to make real breakthroughs. So it sounds to me that you do have some hope in that um, you see the way that uh, the, the psychopharmacological industry does have room in it for some kinds of risk takers and there are these new these psychedelic compounds which and, 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 uh, and cannabis, which clearly are, are are helping some aspects of the problem and perhaps we can get much more uh, uh, specific about what those things things are. Do you see other? You know, lights on the horizon, other ways to, to break up the kind of sclerosis that seems to be affecting so much of the medical
1: industry. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you've made most of the good points. I mean, the uh, I mean, academic institutions, as well as pharma, are frightened of their reputation. And if you stick your neck out, you usually get kicked out, um, which is, is of course what happened to Tim Leary in the sixties, <laughs> but it's it's still it's still happening today. So we we're all kind of muzzled to a certain degree. And what what and society of course has become very much more risk averse than it was in the sixties and even the eighties. And often the agenda is driven by lawyers, um, which may be good, but when you're dealing on a day-to-day basis with patients and you, you sense and you feel their desperation, you you often feel that they are prepared to take far greater risks uh, than our societies allow them to do. And the, the one, one of the ways forward that I, I'm hopeful, and again, I, I Burroughs was aware of this. I mean, Burroughs used to, say, he, in one of his writings, I think one of his letters, he said he toyed at one time about being uh, an academic, but he he said he couldn't bear the thought of spending half his life in meetings drinking cups of tea with people he didn't particularly like and just talking about uh, things without being able to actually do anything. And he advocated, and of course in a way he was an example of this, of the independent researcher, the sort of freelance researcher who freed himself of... um, all these institutions which are supposed to be looking after us, but, but actually sometimes uh, I think go a bit too far. So well, one of the things that I've been trying to do, and I think this is a way forward, and many people are, you know, it's not just me, you know, I'm not the only one doing these things, um, is to work with a patient groups. So you know, often in the context of charities, the Parkinson's foundations and so on, and most of these groups have, uh, and of course Michael J. Fox is a, a very, very well-known example of all this. But ma- many of these people are very well informed; they know the risks, they know the literature, and they're prepared to experiment uh, outside universities. So I think that what, if things don't improve, what can, what potentially can happen is going to happen is that doctors will work, as indeed scientists already do, do, doctors will work directly with patient groups. They'll get they'll get patients to sign consent forms, and they'll free themselves from um, these terrible roadblocks which are suffocating us, making it almost impossible. Many really bright young people are being driven away from... Medical research into everyday clinical practice uh, simply because of this problem, and I think it's a terrible mistake. I mean, that's a yeah, uh,
0: we're losing you a little bit there. I'm not sure what what what's with your microphone. We just got a couple of uh, couple of minutes here. Uh, I'm I'm curious what what you what would you would say to someone about why they should read Burroughs. Uh, To me, uh, as I said at the beginning, like he's someone I started reading as a young man, and um, while there's, I'm not, I have not read, you know, his letters. I haven't gone as deep as I have with other authors. He's stayed with me uh, more than more than most, Um, and so I'm just kind of curious, like after having this very interestingly personal, uh, and even to some degree professional relationship with him as a kind of figure, as a kind of. Um, example and a counterexample in some ways. Uh, what what you would say about his, his lasting value? Uh, you know, today when things are are so much darker, they kind of look we're, we're more in a Burroughs story for for better, more worse. But um, how how would you kind of frame his his importance today?
1: Well, uh, I I mean I, I I don't expect that many young colleagues will adopt. Uh, Burroughs as a sort of men- unlikely mentor as I've done, but the the more general point I wanted to make, and I think I tried to make in the book, was that uh, you can you can derive enormous benefits in uh, in any walk of life that you're in by having uh, bringing your interests outside your profession uh, into your work. So by intersecting my interest with Burroughs, with my fascination with Parkinson's disease, uh, this this has been productive for me. So I could see the same thing happening for somebody who had an interest in astronomy, uh, but they were a neurologist interested in a cure for Parkinson's disease. So it's this sort of concatenation of two separate uh, worlds, which is where... Um, often the collisions in our brain circuits happen which are what the art of the soluble and real research is so um, uh, that would be a general point I mean as far as people reading Burroughs of course many people have considered him a terrible influence and responsible for uh, uh, leading many people down a downward spiral of, of drug addiction because they've you know particularly in the, the punk world and the post-punk world of the 80s he was adopted as a kind of uh, cult figure uncle bill and I'm sure that uh, people were found dying in a, a tenement block uh, uh, with a copy of naked lunch with them but if, if you really uh, read naked lunch carefully I mean there are and, and not he first of all I think Burroughs Unless I've misread him, I I really don't think he ever glorified or recommended uh, uh, drug addiction. But on the other hand, I do think he felt comfortable in the presence of addicts. I think he uh, he was disillusioned. Many people he hated these people who were trying to control us. And he had very good reason for doing that, because, of course, he was uh, a homosexual at a time when it was a criminal offence. Uh, he was a junkie when it was illegal and considered a crime rather than a disease. Uh, so he really was terrified of people controlling him. Um, and he described this group of people who he called shits, uh, who were really just there to try and make, make one's life quite difficult. So I think in a time where we're um, all being more and more controlled, um Burrows can um, help help us to at least realize that uh, uh, and try to do something about it. I mean, Great, so I, I, I that's what I would re- really see him helping with.
0: Okay, thanks, Andrew. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, thanks so much for this conversation. It's it's been very interesting. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. All right, just. A.J. Lee's Mentored by a Madman, the William Burroughs Experiment. Check it out. And until next week, keep your minds open.